4: Good
5: morning. Charles Osgood is off today. I'm Mo Rocca, and this is Sunday Morning, the first Sunday morning of spring. A gossip website known as Gawker has been testing the limits of free speech for more than a decade. Now, this past Friday, Gawker may have hit that limit hard. A jury awarded the wrestler Hulk Hogan $115 million in damages after Gawker posted a sex tape that featured him. It's the biggest challenge yet for Gawker's founder, as Aaron Moriarty will report in our cover
0: story. I have a phrase, nothing is ever as good or as bad as it seems at the time.
6: British-born journalist Nick Denton built a bare-bones startup into an internet powerhouse with a steady diet of
0: exposés. Gossip is the version of news that the authorities or the celebrities or the officials don't want people to know. Hulk Hogan
6: sure didn't want people to know about that sex tape. And now Gawker may have to pay a crippling price. Just ahead this Sunday morning, we talk with Gawker's Nick Denton. Singer Gwen Stefani
5: has been a superstar for years and recently the center of a very public marriage breakup. She'll talk about all of it with our Lee Cowan for the record
7: had a chart-topping band, a successful solo career, a clothing line, and three young boys. But when Gwen Stefani's marriage of 13 years blew up in the most public of ways, she almost fell apart.
8: At that time, everything was like I had no skin. I was so raw. You know what I mean? And nobody knew what was happening and I had this big secret. So this is what the truth looks like. How
7: she turned that secret and a few others into what she says is her most personal album ever, a hit on Sunday morning. We're on the trail again
5: this morning. Connor Knighton will be taking us to yet another of our national parks.
3: Warning, bring your boots. It may look a little swampy and feel a little buggy. If I slap one on my wrist, am I going to get a fine from the park service? Yes, you are. So give me a dollar every time you do that. (laughs) But for the thousands of plant and animal species that call the Florida Everglades home... There's no place else like it in the world. We head to the first national park created not to protect amazing scenery, but amazing biodiversity. Later on Sunday morning.
5: A new musical is about to open on Broadway, thanks to two very well-known singer-songwriters who are content in this case to make their contributions offstage. They'll be talking with Rita Braver.) Income. Income.
9: I think of them as performers. What I am is what I am but now Steve Martin and Edie Burkell are moving behind the scenes. What could be better than holding your cars to me? As writers of a new Broadway musical. You're a young girl and you ought know better. What do you hope that audiences take away from this show?
10: Me? I hope they have a good time. I hope they laugh and they cry. That's, that's what I hope. And they're moved.
9: Star. Ahead on Sunday morning, hoping to set Broadway aglow.
5: Jim Axelrod shows us how the late artist Norman Lewis is finally getting his due. Steve Hartman has a story of patient and nurse. I'll take you through the maze we call the CBS Broadcast Center and more. Ahead. A tale of patient.
11: I thought I knew who she was.
0: And nurse. But next. I think people have a right to to know the unauthorized version as well as the authorized version of news.
5: Gawker, testing the limits.
12: Welcome to Play It, a new podcast network featuring radio and TV personalities talking business, sports, tech, entertainment, and more. Play it at play.it.
5: And now a page from our Sunday morning almanac. March 20th, 1981, 35 years ago today. The finale to a tabloid sensation of a trial. For that was the day Gene Harris was sentenced to 15 years to life for the killing of Dr. Herman Tarnauer, the creator of the popular Scarsdale Diet. Gene Harris was a divorcee and a girls' school headmistress involved in a years-long romance with Dr. Tarnauer. After discovering that the diet doctor was two-timing her with a younger woman he employed in his office, Jean Harris took herself and her handgun to his suburban New York home on the night of March 10, 1980, not to kill him, she testified at trial, but to confront him before committing suicide. Instead, she said, the doctor struggled with her over the gun, and it accidentally went off, killing him. The Tangled Tale was told in not one but two made-for-TV movies, including an HBO offering in 2005 with Annette Benning in the title role.
13: I want to say that I did not murder Dr. Herman Tarnower and that I loved him very much and never wished him ill.
5: Jean Harris's story of romantic betrayal failed to sway the jury, which convicted her of second-degree murder. However, she did win the support of some feminists and writers, including Diana Trilling, who compared her to such wronged heroines of literature as Madame Bovary and Anna Karenina. Unlike them, Jean Harris survived. A model prisoner, she counseled and tutored her fellow inmates, while her son Jim stood on New York City sidewalks, drumming up signatures for a clemency petition. At the end of 1992, New York Governor Mario Cuomo commuted her sentence. And in a public appearance in 1994, she reflected on her experience.
14: The most compelling lesson that I learned in prison was how connected we all are to one another. The problem of one of us is the problem of us all.
5: Jean Harris died on December 23, 2012. She was 89 years old at eight hundred thousand dollars fair warning coming up (laughs) sold eight hundred thousand dollars finally getting his due there's a certain satisfaction in seeing a talented artist finally getting his due Jim Axelrod
2: has a case in point lot number 49 this is an untitled work by Norman Lewis at an auction at New York Swan Galleries, the artist Norman Lewis is about to have a very good day. At five hundred thousand dollars up front with Jess on the phone, would you bid five fifty next five fifty? According to Nigel Freeman, a specialist in African American fine art, Lewis's work is hot.
0: The estimate is two hundred and fifty to three hundred and fifty thousand dollars. So
2: twenty years ago. Mm-hmm. What do you think this painting would have sold for? It would have
0: been embarrassingly low, unfortunately. Um, Paintings of his sold for less than $20,000. At $800,000,
2: fair warning. Sold $800,000, thank you. That was a record for the painter. 36 years after his death, Norman Lewis is having a moment, exactly as he predicted. Taryn Fuller is his daughter. Did Norman know that it was going to take a while for him to get the proper consideration?
11: Norman told that to my mother and myself, that he didn't expect to be noticed until 30 to 40 years later, maybe even longer.
2: Here you are right on time.
11: Well, he called it, just like he could call the horses.
14: (laughs)
2: For 50 years, Lewis painted with a style all his own and an astounding command of color and line.
11: I always thought of him as a wizard. That, to me, would sum it up. He played the piano, he was a true Renaissance man, you know, had a lot of vigor. He talked about excellence and understanding what that meant, and always shooting for the ceiling.
2: I may not reach the ceiling, but uh,
14: I think I still have tried to do things that I believe.
2: Decades after his death, Norman Lewis is enjoying a critical reappraisal, seeing his work acquired by several major museums. The colors are spectacular. Yeah. AND NOW THE PENNSYLVANIA ACADEMY OF THE FINE ARTS IN PHILADELPHIA IS MOUNTING THE FIRST MAJOR RETROSPECTIVE OF HIS ART. RUTH FINE IS THE CURATOR.
14: I WANTED TO DO IT BECAUSE I THINK HE'S PROFOUNDLY IMPORTANT AND INTERESTING. I THINK THE WORK IS COMPLEX AND BEAUTIFUL.
2: BORN IN HARLEM IN 1909 TO CARIBBEAN IMMIGRANTS, Lewis was profoundly influenced by the energy of the Renaissance unfolding just outside his front door. As he is looking at Harlem, what is he seeing?
14: Seeing everything. He's seeing people warming themselves by a burner. He's seeing people going shopping. He's looking at style. The figurative work that was exhibited most during his lifetime is this painting, which was sometimes called a girl with yellow hat, sometimes yellow hat.
2: In the mid-1940s, Lewis moved on, embracing abstract expressionism, a rare departure for an African-American artist.
14: I think he did not want his art to be pigeonholed, and he wanted to live his life the way he wanted to live it, and he wanted to paint his art the way he wanted to paint it. I don't see that as a rejection of anything. I see that as an embrace of everything. Everything.
2: In the middle of this work, you see two burning crosses.
14: You do. Absolutely. So he
2: Absolutely. had to be had to be depicting a clan rally. It was a tough time in this country. Lewis's work did not go unnoticed.
14: He showed in one of the best galleries in New York, the Willard Gallery. He got very good press in the important art journals. He was in 132 group exhibitions in his lifetime.
2: But Norman Lewis's stature was bumping hard against the facts that governed mid-century life for a black man, even in the art world.
0: He was at the Venice Biennale the year that they showed de Kooning and Jackson Pollock, but... He didn't have the same attention. He didn't get the same commercial success as his peers. What did Norman Lewis have to deal with?
14: Well, he had to deal with being left out of exhibitions that were exhibitions of white artists, but he also was left out of exhibitions of black artists that I would have thought he would have been in, but he was too abstract. And he wasn't fitting the picture that... um, People wanted to tell about what black art was. So he got it from both sides.
10: Is this, is this
2: one finished? This
6: yeah. one? Is this? Yeah. That's fine, huh?
2: Norman Lewis's struggle for his rightful place among his contemporaries produced an extraordinary body of work and a smoldering rage to go with it. The fact that he wasn't recognized the way he should have been during his lifetime, did you see frustration about that?
11: Norman was angry. There was a subtle anger to him, you know, disappointment.
2: I don't know how he kept painting. Uh, I know he had some rage. I know he was upset. But he didn't let that affect his painting. He just kept painting. Former NBA player and coach Daryl Walker is a noted collector of African-American art. That's Norman, untitled, 1964. He owns four works by Lewis. Were you surprised as you started to see what Norman Lewis's work, the prices that his work was commanding? No, because I knew the work was really good. The last 10 years, there's been a bull rush on collecting... Uh, African American painters and sculptors. Well, you used to go get some pieces and get it for a good price. Those days are long gone, buddy. I mean, long gone. If the story of Norman Lewis is one of racism denying an artist his proper due during his life, then it is also, says Ruth Fine, a story still being written. The reconsideration of Norman Lewis, why now?
14: I think. The art world is realizing that the story of American art is much more diverse. Young scholars, but even old people like me, are trying to f- tell the story of American art in a in a fuller, more complex, way, more interesting way.
2: We we can't go undo the past. I wish we could, but we can't. But all I'm saying is, focus on Norman now. Focus on Norman because he's one of the best out there. If you
11: need
2: Still to Come
11: my Heaven and my
5: Steve Martin and Edie Brackel Broadway Bound you go and,
6: make me like you?
5: and later, Gwen Stefani For The Record
12: Welcome to Play It, a new podcast network featuring radio and TV personalities talking business, sports, tech, entertainment, and more. Play it at play.it.
14: It's Sunday morning on CBS. Here again is Mo Rocca.
5: A new show set to open on Broadway features the work of two familiar stars playing crucial yet unseen roles. Rita Braver has saved us front row center seats. Take it away, Rita. Rita.
0: I have learned the brightest, brightest day can turn into the darkest night. Bright Star, keep shining for me. Shine, shine on and see me shine.
9: Bright Star, opening on Broadway this coming week,
11: Bright Star, Bright Star,
9: is in part about a young man on the brink of discovering his own surprising history.
5: I'll shine for you.
9: And you might say the people who wrote the musical are bright stars themselves.
10: We are two wild and crazy guys.
9: Steve Martin, known for his comedy.
2: The new phone book's here. The new phone book's here. I'm somebody now. Film work. I'm in print. Things are going to start
11: happening to me now.
9: And more recently, as a bluegrass musician and composer. His co writer is famed singer songwriter Edie Brickell.
10: So, how was the whole lyric done?
9: Because if you knew my story, my the And though she was raised in Texas and he in California, it can be. Broadway always beckoned.
10: I had a 33 RPM of uh, The Music Man that I just played over and over and over and, and memorized.
6: My and mom also, used to sing to us in the car all the time, and she sang show tunes. There were great melodic songs from the radio. And, oh, what a beautiful morning! You know, she was always
9: singing and trying to cheer us girls up. But the story of their collaboration is as full of twists and turns as the show itself. In you may remember Martin's first hit song.
10: Now when he was a young man, he never thought he'd see. He'd people standing line to see the boy king, king.
9: His real musical talent, however, was on the instrument he started playing as a teenager.
10: When I heard the banjo, I was completely motivated. I loved it so much.
9: But it wasn't until about 15 years ago that he really added musician to his varied résumé. For her part, Raquel, considered an icon of the late 1980s indie music scene, had put her career on the back burner. After her 1992 marriage to Paul Simon, raising their three children became her priority. I would never have kids if I couldn't be with them. If I couldn't sit and hold my baby all day long,
6: I, 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 I wouldn't have had, I, I wouldn't have done it. I, I
9: needed, I needed to be with them. But she also became a fan of her old friend Steve Martin's music. And five years ago, with her children growing up, she ran into him at a party. And so I said, if, you, if you'd ever like to write a song together, I'd, I'd sure love it.
0: Love has
9: come for you. And thus, a new partnership was born. They started writing together. Steve composed the tunes, as he calls them, and Edie the lyrics. He never gave her a day's worth of grief. She lit up when it came They performed as well, and in 2014, the title song of their first album,
6: Love
9: has come for you won the Grammy for Best American Roots Song.
10: Well, we are uh, truly stunned if I can speak for Edie, and I
9: will. Um... Soon they were dreaming of writing a Broadway show.
11: If you knew my story,
9: you'd have a hard time. Being White Star, set in North Carolina, is inspired by an old newspaper article Edie found.
10: It was a story about a baby that had been thrown from a train in a suitcase and it lived and someone discovered the baby uh, in the suitcase and raised it.
9: Edie, you found this item and it just set your mind to clicking, what happened? I I, I love miracles and and I
6: read that story and said it's such a beautiful miracle and it's so weird that anybody could do such a thing and it just, it did, it sparked my imagination.
9: What could be better than holding you close to me? And so they created a tale of love lost and found. You're a young girl
7: and you ought to know better.
9: Of lives unexpectedly intersecting.
2: We're gonna restage that,
9: yeah. And they got Tony Award-winning director, Walter Bobby, on board. What attracted you to work with two people who've never done a Broadway show before?
10: The two people. (laughs) (laughs) And actually, Steve, as I remember this, brought the script over to my uh, doorman that day and I read it instantly. And the doorman started to reject it. He he said, (laughs) Walter, really?
9: In the midst of all of this, Martin and Brickell managed to release a new album recently, Got my four wheels on the pavement. complete with a video shot in, of all places, I an elevator.
6: I'll go anywhere, but I won't go back.
9: The fun and quirky take is like much of their work. With Martin, now 70, and Briquel 50, it does seem that their musical collaboration is still a bit of a surprise, even for them. It came to you both a little bit later in life. I mean, what do you see from this partnership going forward? It
10: has been, for me, a real miracle in my life because it brought us, we were touring, we were creating all these songs. You know, suddenly I went from having written 20 songs to have written 60 songs. I never look back at my work, but I will actually listen to our old songs.
6: How about for you? It's remarkable. Steve is like a big gift in my life.
9: Now, of course, their focus is on their show. They know the stakes are high, in a medium where everyone is looking for the next new thing. But Steve Martin and Edie Raquel say that they deliberately created a more traditional musical, like the ones they grew up loving. What do you hope that audiences take away from this show?
10: Me, I hope they have a good time. I hope they laugh and they cry, that's, that's what I hope, and they're moved.
9: Relief,
6: joy, and connection, a really good time. Right, to go out and to, to leave uplifted and feeling good as opposed to, gee, that was intellectually stimulating, but I feel terrible.
5: (laughs) Next, we get happy. Don't worry, be happy now. It happens this week, today in fact. The International Day of Happiness, so designated by no less than the United Nations. Echoing our own Declaration of Independence, the U.N. General Assembly Resolution proclaims, quote, the pursuit of happiness is a fundamental human goal, and it calls on all member states to observe the International Day of Happiness in an appropriate manner. So how, you might ask, are those member states doing? Well, according to the World Happiness Index, released just this past week, Denmark is the happiest land on earth, with citizens there rating their happiness at more than seven on a scale of zero to 10. Switzerland comes in a very close second. Other European countries, plus Canada, New Zealand, and Australia round out the top 10. As for the United States, we finished at number 13, Up two spots from last year. We're just behind Austria and just ahead of Costa Rica. So forget your troubles. Come on, get happy. Push us up in those rankings. After all, it is spring. Just ahead? A little over 50 years ago, CBS moved here. On tour with me. To what was billed as the largest television plant on the Atlantic seaboard.
12: Welcome to Play It, a new podcast network featuring radio and TV personalities talking business, sports, tech, entertainment, and more. Play it at play.it.
5: We're often asked by our Sunday morning viewers about where our show comes from, about our studio. Well, right now we're in Studio 45 here at the CBS Broadcast Center, which is a very big place. Just how big? Follow me. We're going outside. A little over 50 years ago, CBS moved here to the west side of Manhattan to what was billed as the largest television plant on the Atlantic seaboard. Half a million square feet of floor space, more than the combined size of 10 football fields, pretty much a whole city block. But originally, this place wasn't for TV. TV. It was the world's largest milk distribution center. With seemingly endless corridors snaking through this sprawling complex, some parts of the broadcast center... Stand back. ...remain virtually unexplored. In fact, before there was milk here... There was beer i deep down in the catacombs of the broadcast center. It is said that in the late 1800s, this was a brewery. The catacombs themselves are three stories deep. Dank, murky, eerie. Historical fun fact, this is where all the late great CBS news anchors are buried. I'm kidding. I made that up.
10: Good evening. This is Walter
5: Cronkite from our CBS News election headquarters in New York. CBS News moved in here just in time for Walter Cronkite to anchor coverage of the 1964 presidential election from Studio 41. Those returns are put into IBM's 7010 computer here in the studio. The new facilities were touted as a versatile, multi-purpose electronic wonderland. This same studio was home to the soap opera As the World Turns.
6: I've been trying to find you.
5: Starring a young Julianne Moore as half-sisters Franny and Sabrina. Now, at this very moment, no one's home here in Studio 41. So you can see how truly cavernous it is. Up there, almost 300 lights. It may be quiet here, but over in Studio 43... (laughs) It's March Madness.
4: The gathers and the pushing and shoving.
5: Yeah, I, but I just, CBS Sports is in here, covering the NCAA basketball tournament. Guys get into it all the time. This gentlemen, is- I'm sorry to interrupt, but I'm giving the CBS Sunday morning audience a tour of the broadcast center. You may recognize these gentlemen, Ernie, Clark, Kenny, and Charles. Wait, you, you said you, you hate to interrupt. Why are you interrupting? I thought I'd just throw myself right into it. But you're right, I should not apologize, because this is much Madness. I could chat all day with these guys but less moonfez this is the boss right hello everybody the man who signs my check has just walked in Ready? broadcast center gets very busy Joey, look
14: over here anyone
5: now this is the scenic shop where scenery for a whole bunch of different shows gets made one of the many marvels of the broadcast center when it first opened was the largest plastic vacuum forming machine in the industry capable of making a brick wall that weighs next to nothing. Thanks, Jimmy, this is pretty cool. You're welcome. Okay, whenever you're ready. Jimmy right. Bianco is I going to make us something do you do you with you the vacuum voice?
14: form.
5: <laughs> <laughs> and after our project cools off. That's it. Wow, how, how long have you been here? I've been doing this for 36 years. It needs to be painted by Flo Francillis. Well, Flo, you have outdone yourself. Thank you. Oh, you know what, I just realized. Yeah. I'm hosting the show this morning.
13: Oh, you better go.
5: Now, Sunday Morning has been on the air for 37 years, but we're not the only show to come out of Studio 45. You baby boomers will surely remember Captain Kangaroo. And we're back. Thanks for joining me on this tour. Oh, that thing I had made? Nice, huh? Coming up...
13: There's no place else in the world that crocodiles and alligators overlap.
5: On the trail at Everglades National Park. And later, Gwen Stefani, story and song.
8: I just want to tell the truth and I want to write and I want it to be coming from me.
5: Our Connor Knighton is on the trail again this morning, celebrating the centennial of the National Park Service with a visit to another one-of-a-kind park.
3: They call it the River of Grass. And to truly get your feet wet exploring the Everglades, you need to actually get your feet wet.
13: You can't really understand it just by driving by like you can if you're standing in it. Ranger Alan Scott has been exploring the
3: over 1.5 million acres of South Florida's Everglades National Park for 20 plus years.
13: These trees have lost their leaves, but I'm noticing, like, the little ones are
3: starting to leaf out. His sluice logs, or wet walks, deep into the cypress, don't follow any set trail. And while he sees the beauty in this swampy landscape... Isn't that beautiful? The Everglades wasn't protected for its scenery.
13: It was the first national park that was set aside by the National Park Service, by the people of the United States, for what is alive, the plants the animals, and the habitats.
3: The different varieties of plant and animal life found in the park are staggering. With over 1,000 species of seed-bearing plants and more than 400 species of birds, Everglades is an international biosphere reserve. Some species, like the endangered Florida panther, are hardly ever seen. And some, like the lowly mosquito, can be all too common. If I slap one on my wrist, am I going to get a fine from the Park Service? Yes, you are. So, give me a dollar every time you do that. (laughs) But you don't need to trek deep into the habitat to find the Everglades' most famous inhabitant. Just drive down one of the park roads and you're bound to spot one. The American alligator can be found throughout the Everglades, in the water and on the trails. But keep an eye out, and you might also spot a crocodile. And that combination is especially rare.
13: They both find conducive environmental temperatures and uh, habitat where they can find food. There's no place else in the world that crocodiles and alligators overlap.
3: This stretch of Florida, with its mix of salt and fresh water, is just warm enough for crocodiles and just cool enough for alligators. Both animals are technically crocodilians, and biologist, Mark Perry, often has to explain the difference.
13: The main difference most people notice between an alligator and a crocodile is the, the shape of the snout. So the crocodile has a much more A-shaped pointy snout, and then the alligator has a broader uh, rounded snout. The other thing that people usually notice is the crocodiles are more of a gray color, and alligators are a black to dark green color.
3: But for Perry, there's no comparing them. Are you team alligator or team crocodile? Crocodiles. Crocodiles all the way. I'm a croc snob. (laughs) A
13: croc snob? They're both awesome.
3: (laughs) Thanks to conservation efforts in the park, the once endangered American crocodile has been downgraded to threatened in Florida. Back when Everglades was established in 1947, the idea of creating a national park to protect plants and animals may have seemed revolutionary. But today, the habitat
13: still has a lot to offer people. Here in Everglades National Park, you can go 50 miles from anybody and be in true wilderness alone and listen and feel what it feels like to be in nature.
12: Welcome to Play It, a new podcast network featuring radio and TV personalities talking business, sports, tech, entertainment, and more. Play it at play.it.
5: The healing interactions of patient and nurse usually run in just one direction, Not so in the version of that story
4: Steve Hartman has to tell. A few months ago, here at Frederick Hospital in Milwaukee, nurse Lynn Bartos took a long, hard look back on her career. After 44 years of sacrifice and devotion, she wondered, was it worth it?
11: I invested a lot of myself into being a really good nurse. And did it really make a difference?
4: She got her answer when she became the patient. Lynn? Lynn has rheumatoid arthritis, and last summer, during one of her doctor's visits, she was treated by a new nurse named Nicole Cran, who seemed strangely familiar.
11: Just something on her face and her eyes. I thought I knew who she was. Do you still get goosebumps when you think about it? I do. I have goosebumps right now.
4: Lynn first met Nicole 28 years earlier, uh-huh. back when they both shared the cover of Children's Nurse magazine. It was an article about Lynn and the special relationship she had with Nicole, her patient at the time.
11: She was a very lovable little girl. Nicole,
4: with that whale spout of a ponytail, had a life-threatening intestinal problem. And Lynn, or Sweet Linny, as Nicole used to call her, spent years nursing her back to health. But... <laughs> That was then.
11: Nicole was this little girl that I took care of, and now she's taking such good care of me. It was like-
4: Nicole says she doesn't remember much from those days. But here's what's interesting. She also doesn't remember a time mm-hmm. when she didn't want to be a nurse.
12: Oh yeah, I always wanted to help people,
8: and I don't remember if I really just liked nurses. I just knew I always wanted to be one.
4: For as long as she can remember, she always wanted to be one. Some might say that's a coincidence. But to Lynn, (laughs) it's a godsend. Uh,
11: This is just what I needed. It is definitely a gift. Because now I know for 44 years, I made a difference in people's lives.
4: 44 years and maybe generations to come.
11: Next,
5: Gwen Stefani. She's starting over.
14: It's Sunday morning on CBS. Here again is Mo Rocca.
5: Gwen Stefani had a very big hit with "Hollaback Girl back in 2005. Yet along with the hits, there's been one very big and public miss, a real blow to her personal life. She talks about that and more with our Lee Cowan for The Record.
7: Stefani is, underneath it all, a superstar who doesn't brag.
8: If I want to show off, I'll be like, da-da-da-da. Dun, 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 dun. <laughs> her
7: collection of awards, including her Grammys, are tucked away in a closet in her Beverly Hills
6: home. I thought I had more than that. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Don't got, He's got 3 we <laughs> We've got three. That's enough. Hey, baby. Hey, baby. After
7: two decades on the charts, Stefani's had the time and the talent to rack up all kinds of recognition.
11: Always get the girls in the back.
7: But last year's Grammys were bittersweet. It was the last night the pop star would be truly happy for a long, long while.
8: Everything fell apart last February, right after the Grammys, day after the Grammys.
7: Day after the Grammys.
8: Yeah. I woke up that morning and it was just that was it. It was like my life changed forever.
7: Gwen Stefani's high wattage marriage to Gavin Rossdale, the lead singer of the band Bush, exploded after 13 years.
8: At that time, everything was like I had no skin. I was so raw, you know what I mean? And nobody knew what was happening and I had this big secret.
7: And the 46-year-old rocker, fashion icon, and mother of three young boys suddenly found herself at a crossroads.
8: I was down all the way. Like, that's, you don't go down lower than that. You know what it's I mean? Rock it was rock bottom. I was so embarrassed. You know what I mean? I just was like, wow, like, I have to turn this into something. Like, I can't go down like this. If I can do music, everything will be okay. It's kind of complicated, that's for sure.
7: But music hadn't come easily for Stefani so of late. A long, frustrating bout of writer's block, she says, had left her musical confidence shaken. What was it like going into the studio for the first time?
8: When I walked in there, I just said, listen, I just, I don't care about the charts, hits, style of music. I just want to tell the truth, and I just have to get this out of me, whatever it is, and I want to write, and I want it to be coming from me. I really don't want to embarrass myself.
7: Her misery turned out to be her muse. Within a matter of weeks, she'd written more lyrics than she knew what to do with.
8: They're all gonna say I'm rebounding, so rebound all over me. It was just the idea of sitting at a piano and letting my feelings come out and it felt so good. It was like, wow, this is all I need to be doing right now. Nothing else feels good but this. It
7: was like the floodgates just opened.
8: It was like the confidence just came to me and it just felt like the right thing to be doing. Like it was proactive as, as opposed to like just getting deeper into a hole.
7: She was on a roll, but then came a surprise call from a record company.
8: They thought it was just too personal, too artistic, and that they didn't think people would relate to it. And it really deflated me. Like, I was like, wow, you guys, you don't even understand what you're doing to me right now. Like, this is this was saving my life, and now you just punched me in the face. Like, for what, for saving my own life. You know what I mean? Like, that's how it felt.
7: So how'd you bounce back from that?
8: I just went to the studio the next day, and I said- You just went back? I just went back, and I was like, let's write the most non-commercial personal record ever.
7: That very day, she wrote the ballad, Used to Love You. I don't know
8: why I cry, but I think it's because I remember for the first time since I hated you, that I used to love you.
7: She sent a demo over to her record label, and the phone rang once again.
8: It's the first time in my entire career that somebody from a record company called me to say that they thought I had a hit.
7: It's a pretty fast turnaround.
8: It was pretty <laughs> magical. I used to love-
7: Used to love you became Gwen Stefani's first single off her first solo album in a decade fittingly called this is what the truth feels like it is raw almost a confessional it's not the first time Stefani has turned to songwriting for therapy you and me. another painful breakup we used to be together. this one back in 1994 from her band's bassist Tony Canal Let's define to write don't speak. don't speak It was a monster hit that put her and no doubt on the musical map for good
8: I never could understand why I was so unlucky in love I have so much love in me and yet I've just had so much tragedy with that but yet I've had so many like incredible blessings I mean how did this happen to me like it's crazy one of those
7: blessings, she says, was her stint on NBC's The Voice.
8: I would love to help you, because I think you need a lot of help, Blake.
2: Do,
7: What is that supposed to mean? <laughs> she sat two chairs away from country singer Blake Shelton. Timing is everything. He too had undergone a very public split with his wife, Miranda Lambert, a country star in her own right.
8: In all of this craziness that happened, like unexpected horribleness. I found a friend that was going through literally the exact same thing as me and that is a miracle, you know, and it just saved me so much. I feel so grateful for that.
7: Back in the recording studio, Stefani's collaborators began to notice a change in her mood.
8: I was fine for you I was broken but fine. And then all of a sudden I was like, "Hey, what's going on with Gwen? She's so happy." <laughs>
7: that happiness, inspired Make Me Like You.
8: It was so fun to be able to write about being saved and be happy about it and share that joy. She turned
7: it all into an elaborately choreographed live music video sponsored by Target that aired in a commercial break during this year's Grammy. She admits that she wrote Make Me Like You about Shelton, But that's about as far into relationship territory as she's willing to go. Look,
8: you can have me say it out loud, or you can just listen to the record. I mean, I feel like I did everything right to say, I'm not going to let this ruin my life.
7: They don't hide the fact they're a couple. They are publicly private. We've seen it all play out in the tabloids in the sort of over-the-top way these things often go. But she's managed to cope with that, too, by ignoring it.
8: Once in a while, they'll tap into something that you're like, wow, really? Mm. How could you think that about me? You're wrong. And if I saw you right now, (laughs) you know, (laughs) I bet you would never say that to my face. She's
7: never been a shrinking violet. And in a world of 20-something pop stars, she has remained remarkably ageless. But make no mistake, Gwen Stefani has lived a few lifetimes in the last 18 months and has come out on the other side beaming with newfound optimism that's as bright as those signature lips it strikes me that despite everything that's happened to you over the last year and a half that you're almost grateful in a way
8: I feel so grateful
7: which I think people would be surprised
8: I'm surprised you know like I believe there's a master plan for me and part of my journey and my cross to bear was to have to go with like through with what I went through and I accept it and, you and know, made something I, and I tried to make something good out of it.
5: Next anniversary. The Pentagon says a US Marine was killed yesterday by an ISIS rocket in northern Iraq. The attack occurred on the eve of an anniversary that many people might overlook, but which Iraq war veteran Matt Gallagher has not.
13: 13 years ago, the American military invaded Iraq. Something for the history books? Not yet. Everything happening in that region, from ISIS to airstrikes to Delta Force raids, is connected to that decision and the subsequent nine years of war and occupation. According to recent polls, more than half of Americans support a ground invasion against the Islamic State the same number would bar Syrian refugees from entering the U.S. That a ground war against ISIS would lead to substantially more refugees doesn't seem to matter. And that such an invasion would ethically and legally be followed by a lengthy occupation also seems inconsequential somehow. Another poll revealed that 60% of 18- to 29-year-olds, military-age millennials, support American combat operations against ISIS. Nearly the same percentage would never join the fight, though, even if they were needed. For too many Americans in 2016, war isn't a dire act turned to once all other options have been exhausted. It's a narcotic, a quick fix, something that happens in strange, faraway lands where other people's sons and daughters do violent things for country. As an Iraq veteran who spent a formative time in dusty, sectarian towns north of Baghdad, I've long wondered if America pays attention to its foreign affairs. These ugly contradictions and paradoxes don't help with that. Which brings me to the presidential primaries.
10: And the next president of the United
13: States. We're a republic. Citizens can support whomever they choose. But when legitimate candidates running for commander-in-chief suggest war crimes should be allowed, or that carpet bombing makes for sound military strategy, I find myself wanting to find the supporters of these candidates and ask, what if your son or daughter were given those missions? Would you still cheer? In the era of the all-volunteer force, Service members are abstractions and ciphers to many on the home front. It's easier to send abstractions and ciphers to war and keep them there than it is to send people we know, kids we've watched grow. The divide between America and its military is vast. This should disturb us all, soldier and citizen. Republics don't behave like this. Everything the military does abroad happens in our name. They don't just wear the patch of their unit. They also wear the patch of the American flag. They represent us all. It's well past time we remember that and do right by them the way they've sworn to do right by us. Thirteen years after Iraq, it's the least we can do. I'm Mo Rocca. Please join us again
0: next Sunday morning. If you like CBS Sunday Morning with Jane Polly, you can listen early and ad-free right now by joining Wondery Plus in the Wondery app